Uh, I'm, today I'm going to just chat about some of the kind of issues that are specific to the life insurance uh, industry in terms of Quiz One. So really looking at what are some of the practical issues that companies uh, came across in Quiz One, as well as some of the uh, more technical issues, and then looking forward to what we can, ex what you might expect under Quiz Two. So just a, a quick recap of. Um, the actual results for the life insurance companies, and uh, Ian covered quite a bit of this in his talk, so I'm not going to go into too much detail. Um, there were a couple of things I just did want to mention as to, you know, why the pictures change quite a lot uh, for life insurance companies under Quiz One compared to uh, the current FSV or SVM. Um, so the, the the one that Ian did mention, which is a really big one, is the removal of the, all the discretionary margins and compulsory margins, um, and that is a, quite a significant change for most insurers. So, you know, there are quite a few insurers out there who've got quite large margins which they've used to, you know, I suppose manage their reserves quite nicely. Um, what Quiz One does, or, or Sam does, is that it introduces a lot more volatility into the, the balance sheet on the liability side. And that is obviously going to have quite a big impact on the way companies uh, look at their results and how they communicate those results. Uh, so that, that's obviously a big change. You know, it does offset a bit by the risk margin. Um, but, you know, it's still, for most companies, there's quite a large uh, reduction in liabilities, increase in surplus. The other big change is the inclusion of future premium increases in your statutory reserves. Um, they're currently excluded under the SVM unless they result in a strain. So including them, you know, you're effectively moving all of your value of enforce from your better value into your reserves uh, and releasing all that, that uh, profit. Of course, that then has a, an opposite effect on your, your uh, SCR. Uh, the SCR is effectively just calculating how does your balance sheet change in various stress scenarios. So now you have a much more volatile balance sheet. You don't have any as much control over the level of those liabilities. And so you get a, a much bigger capital requirement coming through. And that's why we've seen the capital requirement pretty much triple on average over the, over the industry. So... It's, uh, what that does mean is that it's, it's going to become quite important to look at the actual SCR ratio because that tells us tell you a lot more information than the current the car ratio currently tells you. The car ratio can be very easily distorted by having a very conservative valuation basis, which then reduces your, your car cover. And uh, Sam, you leveling the play, playing field. So everyone is being having their balance sheet calculated in exactly the same way using exactly the same factors. So one of the things it does introduce is this element of comparability across insurance companies, which is, I think, a very good thing. and gives the, the, the regulator a lot more information about how companies might behave under certain market conditions or uh, kind of under different risks. Um, some of the other big changes to the, the balance sheet is around the... Uh, inclusion of your or exclusion of your financial and credit institutions. So the participation. So where a company invests in a subsidiary, which is a financial or credit institution, and that's quite a broad definition. Uh, for quiz one purposes, those are all excluded. So that's a large chunk of your balance sheet, which is no longer available to um, prove solvency. And that's kind of being driven a bit by what we've seen in the financial crisis, where the regulator is a bit nervous that these, these institutions won't actually be solvent in a, a, a kind of SCR-type event. Um, that's one of those things that is going to be looked at in future, but I think, you know, it's not going to go away. There are going to be large capital charges um, against these types of institutions. The other change is around the fact that the SCR is now cal calculated on the total balance sheet. So that includes both your assets back in your policyholders' funds as well as your assets in your shareholders' fund. And that's quite a big difference as well, but there's quite a good reason why that's done. And um, there's been quite a lot of debate as to whether that's right or not, because the argument is, well, why should you hold capital 
because you've got more funds in your uh, shareholders fund, more assets. Um, now, the reason for, for calculating on a total balance sheet is really to ensure that you can pick up all the risks that a company is exposed to. Um, if you give companies the choice to say, okay, let's decide what assets we're going to include in our SEL calculation, it becomes very e or I wouldn't say e well, it becomes possible that you can actually have an investment with a large amount of risk and that can potentially lose a greater uh, amount of money than its value being excluded from the SEL calculation. And that's something the regulator really doesn't want. So all of these factors have led to this situation where the, the, the capital coverage ratio is now reduced quite significantly across the life industry. As for Ian's talk, if there are any questions, just please go ahead and ask me. Okay, so some of the, the practical issues that we saw um, from companies doing Quiz 1. Uh, the first one was really around the asset date, and there, there are a few issues there. First of all, actually getting you know all the information of the assets that, that the company is exposed to. So that's using the look-through approach try and look at, you know, say they've got a unit trust, what are the actual assets underlying that unit trust? And that's needed so that you can actually perform the correct stresses. If you can't do that, then you actually end up having quite a conservative stress applied to those assets. So you assume they're all equities and the worst kind of equity. So, you know, companies are, really struggle to get some of that information. Now, looking forward, if you look at what the QRTs or the quantitative reporting templates require, there they require that detail. So the quiz... You could get away with doing something simpler. You may not be able to do, it with, do that under the final version of SAM. Um, the other bit of information that companies struggle to get was around counterparty exposure. So, you know, for the big asset types, they generally knew who the counterparties were. But looking broader than that and some of the, the, the less, uh, uh, the, the smaller asset types, they didn't necessarily have that, that information at hand. So doing that counterparty default risk calculation is quite difficult, and also doing the concentration risk calculation. So companies did struggle with that. Um, a lot of companies found that the, the life versus health segmentation issue was um, a lot of work for no real benefit, um, and they found it quite difficult to sometimes get that, decide what, how to segment these policies. Often you, it's, you can't really unbundle the policies, so where do you decide where you're going to sit, where you're going to put them? And because of the structure of the SCR, you can end up with regulatory arbitrage because there are different stresses and you've got uh, diversification benefits allowed for between the health and the life. So, you know, you can actually improve your capital position quite nicely by deciding to put something in the health and not in the life. Um, the other big issue was around models. So having to either upgrade the existing models to allow for the specifics of quiz one, such as using a, a yield curve instead of a, a single point. Um, and also being able to project forward your SCR elements or, in some cases, uh, just your, your, your future reserves. Um, but then also having to build uh, valuation models where they didn't exist. So, for instance, a lot of group risk business didn't have a valuation model, and companies had to put that together. So there was a lot of work around that to try to get that all in place. Um, the, the, this entity called the expected profits and future premiums, that's uh, quite a controversial issue. Um, as to, you know, first of all, how do you calculate that? And then what do you do with it once you've calculated it? Um, the, the quiz one had a simplified version of calculating it. So effectively looked at something along the lines of a T-car. It's not really theoretically correct, but it was a, almost a bit of a compromise. Um, the, the true way of calculating it, you have to try to come up with a paid-up basis for all your policies and try to determine, you know, what you would hold as a PUP value for those policies. And the difference between that and your reserve is what you should hold as the EPIFP. Um, uh, there's still some debate as to whether we need something like the EPIFP, whether it's already picked up in the lapse risk 
Um, but that debate's going on, and you might still see something along the lines of the EPIFP inquis too. But a lot of companies, you know, it's fairly easy to calculate on the simplified basis. If you have to go the more theoretically correct way, it'll be a lot more difficult. Um, and then there was quite a bit of, uh, quite a few companies struggled with the loss-absorbing capacity of uh, discretionary benefits. Uh, quiz 1 differed a bit from Quiz 5 in that it uh, had a, this maximum allowable loss um, incorporated, so three years of reducing future benefits, um, which was introduced almost as a bit of a limit um, to try to help companies calculate it. Um, now, it's not necessarily a realistic assumption, and you know, it's a bit of a false ceiling that may not be practical, or may not be uh, what companies would actually do in practice. So there's a bit of work required to, you know, come up with something that will be a bit more realistic. Um, but I think companies struggled with the concept of what is this whole thing about uh, calculating the losses of capacity of discretionary benefits? How does it actually work? What does it practically mean? Um, so we are looking at different ways of doing that in quiz two. Um, if anyone does have any questions on what that is trying to do, please feel free to ask. I can go into a long, detailed discussion. Um, the, the next bit is around the timing and the resources. So I'm sure most people know Quiz 1 did not happen at a great time for most companies. They were busy with their um, either year-end or mid-year work, and they really found it difficult to find the right people to, to do this. So people who knew the models, they were all involved in the valuation work. Um, so quite a few people started as early as possible, took a long break in the middle, and then rushed to get everything finished, which led to a very disjointed process. Um, now, unfortunately, Quiz 2 is happening at the same time, so this is, problem is not going away. Um, but I suppose at least people can you know, start preparing and getting everything together because they have a much better idea of what's going to be needed. But the fact of the matter is it's going to be the same for Quiz 2. Um, the other issues which I haven't got on the slides, but I'll just quickly mention them. Um, quite a few companies didn't have complete reinsurance data. So although they kind of knew what reinsurance they had, it wasn't included in their policyholder data, and they couldn't model it accurately. So that's something, an uh, area of development going forward. Um, and then there, particularly in, in some of the big groups where they uh, use internal reinsurance to manage their balance sheets within the group. Um, on a solo entity basis, Quiz 1 requires that you hold counterparty default risk capital against those. And that can end up being quite a large risk, which when you look at the group basis disappears completely, but for the solo entity it's quite an important uh, number. So that, that was you know, one of the things that people found a bit strange and, and had to get their heads around how they actually do that. Okay, so the, um, the technical issues that, that came up, and this is kind of, a lot of the stuff is in that report, but I'll go into a little bit more detail. Um, so I've talked a bit about the, the EPIFP. Um, you know, the technical issue around that is, well, do you really need it? Um, because if you've calibrated your SCR correctly, then your lapse should actually pick up the risk of that asset disappearing. Because you calculate your, uh, your balance sheet before and after the stress, after the stress, it allows for the fact that a large portion of your policies have disappeared. You've lost all those future profits because your reserves have gone up. So as long as your lapse risk is actually calibrated correctly, then theoretically you don't need to make an adjustment for the EPIFP. It is an asset that you can sell in a stress event to a third party under an economic balance sheet. However, there's still a lot of discomfort around having this large intangible asset on the balance sheet. Um, and I think it does highlight one of the important things about the, the standard formula and about the SAM process in general, which I think people tend to lose sight of when they're looking at the standard formula. And that's that, the, the, first of all, the standard formula is calibrated to the industry as a whole. It's not trying to be a, a replacement for an internal model. It's not trying to be the perfect model for everyone. So there's going to be compromises in the standard formula. 
Um, and, you know, you'd hope that on average you're going to get it more or less right. So, you know, where there's a bit of uncertainty, there's going to be a bit more conservatism, but it's not a, meant to be a perfect capital number. Um, and the reason why you can say that is because SAM has a, the additional requirement of the ORSA, or the Own Risks Insolvency Assessment. And that's where companies can take the opportunity to look at the standard formula, do their own risk assessment and look at their own risks and say, actually, we don't think the standard formula meets uh, or has enough capital for these particular risks. And therefore, we think we should hold a bit more in our internal capital requirement. We're actually going to hold a bit more for um, for their purposes. So the also is actually quite a powerful tool to you know correct any things in the standard formula that aren't exactly right for your company. And I think when companies look at those two together, so for instance, for the EPIFP, you can look at the liquidity risk around having that asset on your balance sheet and allow for it in your, your also and look at your liquidity projections over the next few years. And I think, you know, the, the sooner companies start getting into that frame of mind around using the also like that, I think the, the more comfortable they'll get with the standard formula. Um, the lapse risk was um, quite, as, as you saw in Ian's presentation, lapse risk was the largest part of the life underwriting risk, um, and there were quite a few comments around the lapse risk, um, quite a few comments about the, the mass lapses, um, some people feeling that the gap between the, the retail and the non-retail business was way too big, um, uh, some other people thinking that actually it's the retail one that's too low rather than the non-retail being too big. So that 30% mass lapse, I think there's potential for it to go up. Um, there were also comments made around whether the mass lapse and the up and down lapse are actually independent or that only one of them can happen at the same time. And I think there's a, a very good argument to be made to say that actually if an event happens that causes mass lapses, often that has a knock-on effect to say you're going to have higher lapses in future as well. And so what we're probably going to look at is combining the two and saying, okay, let's allow for some correlation between them and try to pick up a, a more realistic lapse stress, which could have quite a large impact on what you hold as lapse SCR. Um, the, the other big issue in quiz one, and there was a lot of comment around this, was around credit risk. That's covering your spread risk, your counterparty default risk, and to an extent your concentration risk. And there were quite a few issues that came up. Um, one of the big ones was the treatment of illiquid assets. Now, Solvency 2 is calibrated in an environment where um, most of the corporate bonds are actually fairly liquid, and definitely a lot more liquid than we have in South Africa. And so there's this, uh, quite a strong concern that using the same factors or even the same methodology as, as uh, Quiz 5 doesn't treat illiquid assets correctly. And the feeling is that actually illiquid assets, because of the, you know, the, the, the way they're valued, their value doesn't actually change that much. So even in a stress environment, you're not going to have a huge change in the value of your uh, liquid assets. The problem that you really have there is the risk of the counterparty defaulting, not a change in spread. So there's an argument to say that these should be included rather in the counterparty defaults risk module with some adjustments to allow for duration um, rather than in the spread risk module. Um, now, the, my feeling is I can, you know, I, I tend to agree with that argument as long as your balance sheet and the way those assets are calculated in your balance sheet is consistent with that treatment. And I think the problem we have at the moment is that IFRS doesn't have a clear view of what fair value is for these assets and leaves a lot of um, leaves a lot of the decision making in, in the hands of the company and they can choose to say okay, let's go very market, um, um, very, mar very much a market value uh, approach. Let's try to find out what spread risks are in the market and use that to determine our value, in which case you get a very volatile value. Or they can almost go book value and say, well, we're going to hold this to maturity, so we're valuing on a book value basis. If this allows both of those bases, but that means you have to have a different capital calculation for each of those to pick up the risk. 
So I think there's quite a bit of work to be done to make sure that those two are consistent before we get, get to the bottom of this credit risk problem. Uh, the other issue with credit risk, which I think I've mentioned a little bit later, but I'll bring it up now, is just around the whether you use international or national ratings. Um, now there's a lot of people arguing for both of them. Um, there's some, uh, the, the, the quiz one report does go into some of the details around which one, uh, what the pros and the cons of each are. Um, so there may be some developments around that. Currently quiz one's using international ratings. I don't think it's going to change in quiz two, um, but uh, you never know. Um, the loss absorbing capacity of discretionary benefits, I've talked about, about that a bit already, so I'm not going to go into too much more detail, but um, a lot of people didn't, you weren't quite, you know, I don't think they quite understood the methodology that was being used um, and why it was being done. Uh, there was quite a bit of confusion about what this gross SCR actually meant and how this was a very unrealistic number um, when actually the intention was for it to be an unrealistic number. So I think there needs to be a bit more communication around what that, that calculation is trying to do as well as testing alternatives. Um, on the deferred tax, there was quite a bit of inconsistency around how people treated deferred taxes in an SCR event. Um, now, the SAM balance sheet does allow you to set up a deferred tax asset, which would happen if your liabilities um, effectively increased or your surplus increased uh, beyond its uh, kind of current solvency position. Um, and that can happen in an SCR event. Um, and quite a few companies decided actually they would be able to set up a deferred tax asset in that uh, on, in that scenario, and then quite a few others decide actually this wouldn't be able to set up a deferred tax asset. And the reasoning behind saying you won't be able to set up a deferred tax asset is that your all your margins, all your future profits have effectively been stripped out of your liabilities. So your ability to make future profits, which can then use that deferred tax asset, becomes greatly reduced in an SCR event. Um, in addition to that, your uh, ability to attract new business and generate profits from new businesses reduced in an SCR event uh, because of potentially the damage that's happened to your company. So there, I think there's a concern that setting up a deferred tax asset in an SCR event is being too optimistic. And so you might see something where it restricts the ability to set that up. And that can actually have quite a big impact on people's SCRs. Um, the other One of the other questions was the treatment of group business. Now, group business is a bit of a funny one um, because generally it's very short uh, policy terms, so it's actually a lot similar, a lot more similar to a non-life contract than a life contract. And people were quite unsure about how to treat this in the SCR, especially when the next renewal date was less than one year away. Because um, then what happens is you only project forward cash flows for one year and you don't pick up the full risk that could happen over a one-year time horizon of selling that business. So the non-life side gets away with it by saying, okay, let's look at the expected total premiums over a year, even though your policy contract is a lot shorter. So it effectively allow for future new business to replace the business going off. That's not there in the life side. So we may need to have something that corrects that and allows you to value that group business um, in a way that's similar to the way non-life business is valued for the SCR purposes. Um, this is all very dependent on what happens with contract boundaries. Um, if they extend the contract boundaries, then this falls away. So only for contracts where you have less than one year to go. Um, participations was also one where there were quite a few comments. Uh, one of the big ones was the treatment of these credit and financial institutions. You know, to strip them out of your own funds completely uh, is quite a, uh, a conservative approach. Um, the, and especially when you look at how it compares to the way insurance participations were treated. So insurance participations are treated as an equity, and they treat it as a special a strategic equity which only has a 22% uh, fall in value in an SCR event. 
So you had this very different treatment of two quite similar institutions. And there was feeling that the, um, although the one is quite conservative, the treatment of insurance participations is not conservative enough. Because after you allow for diversification, you end up with a situation where actually your capital charge against that insurer is very, very little in the bigger scheme of things. Um, and what would actually happen in reality is that they would lose the SCR insurance company, and that's kind of what the value of the insurance company would reduce by. And there's a concern that the, the current treatment is not picking that up. Um, so there are various alternatives, perhaps include them in uh, own funds at, at uh, NAV less SCR or fair value less SCR. So these things are being looked at. Um, then on the, the difference between this, this life and the health SCR, um, I've mentioned already, um, effectively you can have quite, uh, some, you can have regulatory arbitrage, some of the uh, stresses are different, but as, as well there's diversification allowed between life and health. Um, now, for Europe that makes sense, there's come quite a lot of health business where this would apply to, but in South Africa the feeling is actually health and life in South Africa are pretty much the same. they often written together, the same contracts, it doesn't make sense to look at them separately. Um, so people commented about that. Uh, the contract boundaries is, is quite a controversial one, and uh, the, the contract boundaries, the, the main areas of business where, where there were issues around contract boundaries, where count, contract boundaries are effectively the, the term at which you stop valuing cash flows under a policy. Um, and the, the big ones are around these yearly renewable contracts. How far do you project them forward when calculating your reserves? And then secondly, on something like a linked policy that's open-ended. Um, Quiz took a a compromise view and said, okay, for the link policies, let's assume they've got a one-year uh, boundary. Um, the feeling is that actually that's not really consistent with the economic view of that, that business. If you were to sell that to someone else, they would pay you uh, kind of more than the, the value of the liabilities because they're buying that future profit that you're going to get from that business. The fact that it's on your balance sheet means that you are expected to get future profits from it. And we see that with companies putting an embedded value on that business. So there's anticipation that they're going to make profits. So therefore, you should treat them the same way as any other insurance policy, which can also lapse, which, uh, you know, if you took out the legal boundary, is exactly the same. You know, there's, it's as easy for them to lapse as it is for a, someone with a risk policy. So why treat them differently? Um, the Quite a few people comment on the, the SCR and the total balance sheet. I've already talked about that, That's, so I'm not going to go into any more detail. Um, quite a few comments on the operational risk requirements, uh, the big one being uh, that people felt that because it's not risk sensitive, it doesn't reward uh, people holding, uh, you know, improving their risk governance and can res result in much higher capital requirements than, than anticipated. But the operational risk is a very tough one because it's very difficult to come up with any sort of proxy or measure that can actually, actually pick up operational risk uh, and, and hold the capital. I mean, even if you've got a, a quite a sophisticated capital model, internal capital model, Chances are your operational risk number is at best a very educated thumbsuck, but it's not something you're going to rely on as a, as a, a true capital number. So I think this is one where the, the, the industry almost has to accept that this number is going to be fairly approximate. You know, we, we, we're trying to link it to the size of the company, and that's why it brings in things like, you know, assets under management or uh, linked to fund, uh, to asset management fees. But the reality is you're not going to, it's very difficult to, to derive a risk-based measure for operational risk in a standard formula. The also is really where you want to try and prove that you are managing that operational risk sufficiently, um, and companies that aren't doing it will get a, a pillow two capital add-on. Um, the risk margin, there were, there were a few issues on the risk margin. Uh, the one was the unavoidable market risk. 
companies were a bit unsure about how to allow for that, particularly in things like their PGM 110 liabilities, but also you know going forward in their in the calculation of the risk margin. Um, and quite a few people arguing that to an extent this is already picked up in the calibration of the um, the yield curve. Uh, because the yield curve is, in fact, you've got a 50-year 50 50 year yield curve. Um, the argument is that the uncertainty around that tail is effectively picking up that unavoidable market risk. So by including it in your uh, risk margin calculation, you could be double counting it. And it is actually a lot easier to include it in that tail of the yield curve rather than including it in the risk margin. So the, the, this is some of the things that people are looking at. Um, the, the other thing around the risk margin was, and Ian mentioned it, for companies with negative liabilities overall, you can get some very strange answers uh, if you calculate your SCR excluding the risk margin. So Quiz 1 has a simplifying approach, which says that um, when calculating your SCR, all you stress is all your best estimate liabilities. You don't look at your risk margin. And the reason for that is that there's a circularity that gets in introduced, because the risk margin depends on the SCR, which then depends on the risk margin. And you have to go through several iterations, and it's quite uh, computationally onerous. Um, and companies that have looked at this have found that actually it doesn't make, for a normal uh, diversified company, it doesn't make a huge difference to the result. So it's not worth the effort. However, for companies with negative liabilities, it can make a very big difference. So this is one of the things we want to address under Quiz 2 to say actually companies, if they want to calculate their SCR on the, the, the full technical provisions, then they can do so. Um, but it'll take them a lot longer. Um, the complexity of the credit risk was an interesting one. Uh, and I think it highlights that issue around the standard formula and how it's not going to meet everyone's needs. So the large insurance companies actually have quite a bit of credit risk. Their feeling was the formula is not complex enough. It doesn't, you know, pick up how they manage credit risk in their organization. Uh, for the smaller companies who had a lot less credit risk, they said, this is way too complicated. Uh, it goes way beyond what we need for the credit risk in our organization. So this is one, you know, it is going to be a bit of a compromise. There are avenues open for people who want to do something a lot more complicated. Um, and I think this is one where, you know, people have to, uh, we're going to have to come up with a pragmatic situation that, that, that uh, meets the needs of most people, but it's not going to be perfect. Um, people also commented in the, in the counterparty default risk module around the treatment of unsecured counterparties, um, where these were given a 100% loss given default in a credit event, and people felt that was very unrealistic, uh, particularly things like uh, you know accounts with big banks, where you end up with a huge credit risk, and really the feeling was actually not going to, to lose all your all your asset in a credit risk event. Um, the SCR on total liabilities, I've, I've already talked about that. Um, and then the only other issue was really around the illiquidity premium. And Quiz1 tested a few different methodologies. So the first one, the base case, was allowing for illiquidity premium on your uh, things like your annuities, where you have very illiquid liabilities, in which case it makes sense to have allow for illiquidity in your assets, because then you effectively allow for the matching of the assets and liabilities. Um, Quiz1 also tested expanding that to all your liabilities, and it has a very quite a large impact on the reserves, obviously, um, but, but I think not, not yet convinced that it's appropriate to allow for that illiquidity premium, um, and so companies did comment on that. Okay, this is the final slide, but lots of boxes, I'm afraid. Um, the, the, so what are the things you might see in Quiz 2? Now, these are not final. This is uh, kind of what we're thinking about doing. It does have to go through various approval uh, uh, stages within the, the, the SAM structure. Um, but I think one we can definitely say we're going to see a change around contract boundaries. So quite a lot of work's been done since Quiz 1. Um, likely to see something quite different for the uh, linked business, so a much longer contract boundary. 
Um, and then we might look see something uh, different for the risk business. Um, if we don't see it in the contract boundaries, then we'll have to include something in the life underwriting risk. So, uh, yes, yeah, so one of the difficulties is that you know the, the development of the contract boundaries is happening at the same time as the development of the SCR, and they are quite dependent on each other. If something happens in the contract boundaries which impacts the SCR, and the SCR doesn't pick up all the risk, we need to know that. So they are kind of two moving targets that have to be done together. Um, Ian mentioned the next one, the operationally ring fence funds. Um, now SAM or Solvency 2 has a, a legally ring fence fund requirement, um, which effectively says, okay, treat anything that's ring fenced as a standalone entity, calculate its capital on that basis, and, uh, and, you know, don't allow for any diversification between these entities. Now in South Africa, there's quite a lot of argument as to whether we actually have any legally ring fenced funds. Some of the companies feel that some of their uh, kind of old with profits business that's been brought in uh, is legally ring fenced. Um, the feeling is that maybe in a normal circumstances it is, but if the company was to go bust, all policyholders are the same, um, and that legal ring fencing might not actually be there. So we're looking at something, you know, being operationally ring fenced. So what is actually likely to be the case in a SCR event, which isn't the collapse of the company, it's still going on, but you'll still have these restrictions in place. Um, so that applies to your with profit funds as well as to your uh, sell captors. Um, so it means a lot of work for people who are in that situation, but it does represent the reality a lot more. Um, there are going to be quite a few changes around lapse risk um, and possibly that EPIFP. So there's some, uh, maybe some testing of, well, do we have something similar to a T-car? Um, but then also allowing for the correlation between mass lapse and the up and down lapse. And maybe some uh, changes to the parameters that are being used. Um, for the loss absorbing capacity of discretionary benefits, test into quiz two and any changes that have taken place between um, the latest set of draft regulations, the one that we saw a year ago and the, the level two advice and quiz five, you know, that's all being considered to see what's changing and, and see if we can piggyback off any of that. You know, I suppose it comes back to the question that was asked in the end of the last session. When calibrating the SCR, we really, we, we're adopting approach of use as much data as we possibly can, so where we have data, but we have to be pragmatic and use what is available. And often that's either stuff that's been done in Solvency 2 um, that is you know, appropriate for other countries but not necessarily appropriate for South Africa. We really need to think about, okay, we don't have local data. Is this right? Is it similar enough to our business or do we need to add something on or take something off to make it appropriate? And it's quite a difficult process. I mean, if you look at the, even like a, a fairly large risk, like disability risk, the CSI committee couldn't, wasn't, didn't feel comfortable with coming out with a standard table for South Africa because they didn't have enough data. Now, if you can't get a standard table, how can you possibly get enough data to calibrate a one in 200 year event? So it's, the, the reality is there's a lot of data for most of the market risk, very little data for the uh, insurance risk. So we do need to be pragmatic about what we come up with and say, you know, there's always going to be the criticism, well, how did you come to that? Um, but, you know, as actuaries, we have to use actual judgment a lot, and I think this is going to be one of those cases. I suppose just in, in, terms, of, in terms of the, um, the method and the formula itself relative to uh, Europe, we seem to be sort of moving reasonably far apart with the European process for developing how is that going to be sort of managed in Well, um, it's not really an issue because third country equivalence isn't have you implemented solvency to. It's have you done something that is calibrated to the levels required by um, that one in 200 year event. 
you know, the fact that we're starting off with, with solvency two as a basis and moving away to something that's appropriate for South Africa, I think actually counts in our favor when it comes to third country equivalents, because it shows that we're not just blindly following solvency two, we're actually looking at what are the circumstances that apply in South Africa, how can we adapt what's already been done for our circumstances and come into something that's, that's right for South Africa. Okay, anything else? Thanks, everyone.